0: Help me welcome Dr. Robert Smith to our pulpit this morning. Even now, Lord Jesus, even now, even now, for I ask this in your name, Amen. God be praised. What a privilege, what a delight it is to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. The Lord certainly inhabits the praises of his people, and we as his people must not be inhibited by what he inhabits. We're here to give him glory. He is worthy of it. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Burgraf for your introduction, for your gift of hospitality. To my family that uh, I haven't seen for a while. Dr. and Mrs. Gary Hallquist, they are family to me and to you, my family, that I'm meeting for the first time. I came here because I wanted to initiate a rendezvous that would never end, even in eternity. So, since we're going to be spending time together in eternity together, it's about time for us to have a chance to meet each other. And I have done that, and we are looking forward to seeing what God is going to do. I want to talk about the oasis of God the oasis of god i'm going to read psalm 42 and 43 psalm 42 and 43 hear these words from the word as a deer longs for flowing streams so my soul longs for you o god my soul thirsts for god for the living god when shall i come and behold the face of god my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me continually Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Ramon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From those who are deceitful and unjust, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Why must I walk about mournfully because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. 5th century bishop of Hippo, North Africa, Augustine, has written in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they find rest in thee. That is, God has made us in his image, the imago Dei. He has made us with a God-sized hole in us that nothing and no one else can feel except God. I'm of the opinion that any man that goes to a brothel is seeking God. That anyone who puts a needle in their arms seeking that ultimate high is looking for God. That anyone who tries to find fulfillment in titles, in acclaim, in notoriety, in materialism, in jobs, is seeking God because God has made us for himself and our souls are restless until we find rest in him. Try anything and anything other than God will never give us complete fulfillment. There is this inner craving in us that cries out for God, though we may use another name because there's always this proclivity. There's always this propensity There's always this tendency for matter to return back to its original source. Is it not true what Ecclesiastes 12 and 7 reminds us of? The body goes back to the dust, but the spirit soul goes back to God that gave it. Because there's always this proclivity, there's always this propensity, there's always this tendency to return back to matter. I think it's true even with water. Water exists in three states, as you know, as a liquid, as a gas, and as a solid. However, its original state is liquid. That's what God made, liquid. Two hydrogen atoms, eight hydrogen atoms. If water drops below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, when you take and put liquid water in an ice tray, put it on the kitchen counter, it will stay liquid water. But put that tray inside of the freezer. And once it drops below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts crystallizing and it becomes ice. And you can put hot tea and get iced tea because now water has become ice. But take that ice tray out of the freezer, put it on the kitchen counter, let it stay there a while, and the temperature will go up and exceed 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and ice will become liquid once again because there's always this proclivity, there's always this propensity, there's always this tendency for matter to return back to its original source. But you can take that liquid and put it in a tea kettle and sit it on the counter and it will remain liquid. Put it in a teapot and turn on the eye of the stove and watch the temperature exceed 212 degrees Fahrenheit and that liquid will become vapor because of the state of the temperature. But if you take the teapot off of the stove, put it back on the counter or turn the gas or the electric off you will see that the temperature will drop down below 212 degrees Fahrenheit. There will be condensation because that vapor, that gas will return back to liquid. Because there's always this propensity, there's always this proclivity, there's always this tendency for matter to return back to its original source. We came from God and there is something within us that can never be filled unless God fills it himself. It's God occupying our existence even in difficult situations. So much so that you hear Isaiah saying in Isaiah 32 verse number two that there will be streams in the desert. Streams in the desert. And in Isaiah 35 and one, the desert will blossom the rose, saying that God, if he is our original source and we return to him, can keep us in situations that are antagonistic to happiness, to satisfaction, and to real joy. God is our oasis. An oasis exists when there is a subterranean stream that enables a patch of of vegetation to remain plush, lush, and green. The stream may be invisible, but it's feeding the vegetation so that in a desert-like atmosphere you have lush, plush, and green vegetation. It's It's a paradox. It's fertility in the midst of aridity. It's a paradox, and you know what a paradox is. A paradox occurs where two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. It's what G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic theologian, reminds us of where he says, truth is standing on his head screaming for attention. If you come closer, I know this looks contradictory, I know it doesn't seem to make much sense, it seems to be illogical and unreasonable, but if you come closer, you're going to see some truth coming out of it. It's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, I glory in my weaknesses and in my hindrances, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties, for when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. It's what Jesus means when he says, if you really want to be exalted, you've got to be humble. If you really want to sit at the head of the table, you've got to sit at the end of the table. If you want to be first, you've got to be willing to be last. If you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to find your life, you have to lose your life. Fertility in the midst of aridity? A subterranean stream, though invisible, feeding, supplying, and furnishing. A patch of vegetation that remains green in the midst of a desert. God is our oasis. And you hear the psalmist say in Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants after the water brook, being chased by a hunter in an arid climate, (laughs) (laughs) panting, So pants my soul after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for God. Not just any God, because there are a lot of gods in this foreign land of Babylon, but the living God. When shall I come and appear before God and finds living water in the midst of conditions that are arid and dry? It's Jesus who reminds us that he is in the boat. It's one thing in Mark chapter 4 to be in the boat and to be in the boat with Jesus, though he's asleep. And the disciples try everything they can to keep the boat afloat. But when it seems to be hopeless and they look at Jesus taking a nap at the wrong time, they want to sue him for non-support. Master, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus wakes up and stands up and speaks to the wind and says, wind, be at peace. And the winds go back to the four corners of the earth. And ways be still, and they lay down at his feet like gentle lambs. Now, we will find ourselves in a boat with apparently a sleeping Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you that once you become a Christian, your troubles are over. Once you become a Christian, your troubles really have just begun, just just begun. Let us stop bellyaching. Let us stop complaining. Let us stop suing the Lord for non-support. If you're in a boat with a sleeping Jesus, don't complain. Just thank God he's in the boat. And if he's in the boat, the boat cannot go down because he's the master of the sea. And when he gets ready, he'll stand up in your life and he'll let you know that you can have tranquility in the midst of turbulence and you can have peace, not in the absence of a storm, but in the midst of a storm. Because what God wants to do is not just deliver us, God wants to sustain us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our relational rifts, in the midst of our economic plights so that people can look at us and we can be an advertisement for God and let them know that you don't have to blow out your brains when you're going through difficulty and when the doctor gives you a bad diagnosis, you don't have to take and put a period where God has put a comma, you don't have to give up. That God is able, even at that particular time, to sustain you, to keep you, to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you get to the other end and you can praise God even when you're going through and let people know God is still able. He is still able. He gives us peace in the midst of our storms. Oh, I know that's true. I used to think it was true. I thought I thought it was true. I know it's true because you have to get to the place where you know that you know that you know that you know that you know. You don't know why necessarily you know in terms of being able to articulate it but you just know that you know. It's like Pascal reminds us that the heart knows a reason that the mind does not understand. That the reason does not understand. You just got to get to the place that you know that you know you even though you can't explain that you know. That awful night October the 30th of last year A day that will live in infamy, to borrow the words of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when Pearl Harbor became a reality, the attack on it December the 7th, 1941. The phone rang on October the 30th of last year, about 20 minutes to 2 in the morning. My wife and I were resting. We were going to board a plane that next morning to go back to Cincinnati. I had been in conference in Baton Rouge, Red Stick, Louisiana preached on Friday, preached, taught, and lectured on Saturday. We had a great meal, and we were tired for the evening. The phone rang. My wife picked up the phone, and she listened for what seemed to be an eternity. It really was just five minutes, but it seemed so long. She hung up the phone. I said, baby, what's wrong? She says, it's Tony. I said, what's wrong? Tony's our 34-year-old son. He's been shot. 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 Mark has gone over to the cafeteria, Richie's Restaurant, where Tony worked, Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where we live, Cincinnati. I didn't know exactly why he was going over there. All I knew to do was to go into the restroom, sit down, turn my face to the wall like Hezekiah, and pray. I did that. I said, Lord, spare his life that you might get glory from it. Because we'd been praying. Tony had been in the far country for a while. He'd come back to himself. You know, some people, like the prodigal son... Not only go to the far country, they have to also smell the pigs in the pig pen and get in it. Tony had experienced a bit of that. And so we sat on the porch like the prodigal son's father did. And we kept looking down the road and we kept fattening the calf, waiting for him to come back. Because he had gotten out of the way of the word, but he could not get out of the way of the word in him. Because the word was in him and he came to himself and we were so grateful for that. Didn't know that Mark had gone over to identify the body. He called back about 45 minutes later he said daddy it's Tony the coroner's office has come to get his body and has put him in the bag Tony was at the restaurant working as he was supposed to there was a bad robbery a robbery that went bad actually not one dime was taken and uh, the register was jammed and out of frustration of not being able to get any money one of the robbers just shot him and he died within minutes Well. We kept fattening the calf waiting for Tony to come down the road, but it didn't. And what God said to me is, now, will you still go into the banquet hall and have a celebration even when the sun doesn't come down the road? And he showed me that what I've been preaching, he showed me that this word that I've stood on is true. That He will give you peace in the midst of the storm, therefore, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You and I have no right to be selective about when we're going to praise God. We're going to praise God when we get a good raise. We're going to praise God when we get a good medical report. No, when the bottom of life falls out, we must remember that the bottom is solid, and that God will keep you in the midst of whatever you go through. He wants to be our oasis. In the midst of our desert and our fertility, in the midst of our arid situations. Psalm 42 and 43, I think, are one psalm. Most psalmic scholars say that. I think that's right. Uh, the author is um, questionable. Some thinks it, think that it is a wandering Levite who is in the Levitical choir who writes this psalm. I think it's two Psalms that make one Psalm. I believe this because, for the most part, the triadic refrain. Verse 2 of Psalm 40, verse 5 of Psalm 42. Why you cast down, O my soul, and why you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 42, verse 11. Why you cast down on my soul and why you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43 and 5. Why you cast down on my soul and why you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. The same thread runs through the fabric of both of these psalms Knitting, cementing, and tying them together I contend, I posit That these two psalms are just one psalm I think also because There is a title in Psalm 42 But not so in Psalm 43 Psalm 42, it's, um, it's a psalm For a masculine for the core heights A masculine for the Korahites. No title in Psalm 43. I think the title in Psalm 42 encompasses Psalm 43 as well. The Korahites, Korah, Numbers 16, was the cousin of Moses, the cousin of Aaron, and the cousin of Miriam. Uh, You know, Moses and Aaron and Miriam were siblings. Korah was dissatisfied with God's appointment of Moses being the leader of Israel. So in number 16 he decides that he is going to get conspirators to help to um, usurp and uh, hopefully uh, remove Moses from his position. But of course God put him there and what Moses did was to tell God about what Korah was up to. And God opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and the 250 conspirators, as well as some of the families and friends, and the complaining stopped. Because when God puts you in a position, you don't have to fight stay there. What God has given you, if it's yours, is yours. And and you and and I don't have to defend the word of God. The word of God is a lion. You don't walk down the street uh, with uh, an attachment of a lion trying uh, to keep the lion from being attacked. You let the lion go. The word of God will defend itself. And whatever God has given you, you can be comfortable with it. It is yours. Let God fight your battles. Why do we keep getting in the ring trying to cuss people out who's cussed us out. Trying to take vengeance on people who have hurt us. Let God, we just got finishing it today, be still, be still and know that I am God. In the Latin Vulgate version, it really does mean uh, be defenseless, be swordless, don't have any weapon at all. So much so that as George Matheson says, uh, Lord, uh, here I am. I give my myself to thee and I am only free when I'm in bondage to you and I only win when I have no weapon. Trust God to do it. Now, Korah was a reprobate but his descendants were blessed. There it is. We are told in Jude chapter 1 and only one chapter there, verse number 11 Beware the way of Cain. Beware the way of Balaam. Beware of the way of Korah. Reprobate. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 19. The Korahites stand and give praise to God. They are the descendants of Korah, and his descendants of a reprobate are giving God praise. Which suggests to me, young people, that we are our parents' children. We are not our parents' choices. We are our parents' children. We are not our parents' choices. The descendants of Korah were in the Levitical choir giving him praise, and they didn't do what their ancestor Korah did, move against God's movement. I look at a person like Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse number 2, there is Ahaz. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 2, Ahaz, the king of Judah, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 3, he had a son by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 3, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Hezekiah had a son by the name of Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21 verse number 2. And and Manasseh reigned 55 years in Judah and was the worst king that the uh, people of Judah ever saw. And Manasseh didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So here is Hezekiah who has an evil father, but he's a righteous king used by God. And he has a son by the name of Manasseh who is an evil son, which means this that regardless of who your parents are regardless of your background where you were born God is not interested in where you're from God is interested in where you are willing to go and God is not interested in what you've done God is interested in what you're willing to do and it doesn't make any difference what kind of teacher I hear young people always complaining you know if I had a different set of parents if I just lived in a different neighborhood if I just had a different teacher particularly mathematics and science and if I just had this 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 I do better no Take advantage of what God has done for you. It doesn't make any difference. If your father is absentee and if your mother is an addict, it doesn't make any difference. You don't have to be that way because you are your parents' children and not your parents' choices. And at the same time, you can come from good parental stock. But it doesn't make you necessarily successful and effective. You have not been born with a gold spoon in your mouth. And if they have gone up the ladder and gone up the step to be successful, you're not going to be able to get on an elevator push the button and go up the 21st floor, you've got to struggle. You've got to uh, 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 move to a place where you take advantage of what God has done. And so therefore, there is no, there is no, hear me well, there is inherited sin. All of us have been born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But just because our parents and anybody else in the church has done this and that, it does not mean we have to be that way. God can take and revive our lives and use us. If you're misfit, God can take you from a misfitted situation and place you on a mantle for his glory. And therefore, you can rise above wherever you are. Some of you are sitting here right now. You were voted the most likely not to succeed in high school. Some of you are sitting here right now. You're not even supposed to be able to walk or talk. Some of you have been given a bad diagnosis and you know you're not supposed to be able to live. Some of you are not even supposed to still be in a marriage because when you got married, people start saying right off the, the bat, you're not going to make it in marriage. But don't put a period where God has put a comma. God can do it exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask to think and lift you up for his glory. Here is Korah, who is a bad representative, a bad example, and yet we learned some good lessons from him. This book is really one book with two chapters in it. This psalmist writes to us. In fact, I'm preaching on Psalm 42 for four services. So don't, don't, don't wonder how in the world is he going to get to the development of it. I don't ex- express to get to developing all of this in this service, the second service, the third service, and maybe by the fourth service we'll come around to wrapping it all up. This is a instance where the psalmist is depressed. Do you hear him? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 42 5, 42 11, and 43 5. Why would this psalmist be depressed? Depression has been called the common cold of mental illness. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home, the African-American spiritual says. Some believe that Christianity and depression cannot coexist, that you cannot be a Christian and go through depression. I beg to differ. D. Mart jones that great expositor, of the Westminster Chapel of yesteryear in London, England, writes a book which I recommend, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures, and says that a Christian can be depressed, and yet there is a cure. It's a spiritual cure. I want to suggest six reasons, and I won't get to the six reasons. I'll lift two here, two next service, two the next service. I think two reasons why this psalmist experiences depression. One is because he senses an absence from the house of God. An absence from the house of God. Psalm 43, verse number 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, lead me, to your holy hill, to the place of your dwelling. The psalmist and the psalmic community are probably in Babylon. Babylon that 1,000-mile trek away from Jerusalem, being put in captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian slash Chaldean forces. No longer do they have the temple to worship in. No longer are they celebrating the feast days, the mandatory feast days, the feast of the Passover, the feast of Booth, and the feast of Pentecost. And there is an absence from the temple of God. You get the mood of this in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 5. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willow trees of the midst of, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, that is, entertainment, saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. And their response is this, how can we sing the Lord's song? In a strange foreign land. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth and may my right hand forget her cunning. An absence from the temple of God, the house of God. It's, it's what uh, the Hebrew writer reminds us of in Hebrews 10, 24. Don't forsake this something of yourself together as a man of some is. There ought to really be something within us that desires to be in the house of God. Thank God for televisions and for Christian CDs and DVDs, but nothing takes the place of being right here. Uh, there's something about being right here that doesn't quite come off uh, uh, like it does when you're sitting down watching a service on television. There's something about coming here Downcast, downhearted, and yet hearing the choir sing I must tell Jesus all of my trials I cannot bear these burdens alone in my distress he kindly will help me Jesus will help me Jesus alone I must tell Jesus there's something about coming here even though circumstances may not change when you get back home or get back to your community or get back to your job but what God will do when he doesn't change circumstances he'll change you so that you can deal with the circumstances so that you won't be isolated but he'll insulate you so you can deal with things that can never be isolated from you. Thank God for the church. I was glad when they said unto me, come let us go to the house of the Lord. I think the psalmist feels this absence from the house of God. I really wish Christians will feel that way. I don't know what it is with us. We'll miss church one Sunday, then it gets easier to miss it too, and then miss it three or four times. But there's something that's gnawing in my soul when I miss just one service, because I'm missing more than just gathering. I'm missing God meeting with his people. I think the second reason why the psalmist may have been depressed is not just the absence of the temple of God, but the absence of the God of the temple. The absence of the God of the temple. Psalm 42, verse verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's absent. When shall I come and appear before God? The absence of the God of the temple seems to be distant. You hear the question asked in Psalm 42 and verse number 3. While those around me continually ask, where is your God? Psalm 42 and 10, as with a mortal wound in my body, my adversaries continue to taunt me with a question, where is your God? God seems to be absent. And what do you do when you're John the Baptist and you've been Jesus' public uh, relations manager for three years, and you wind up in death row, and he won't even make a pastoral visit to visit you, and you're his first cousin. And you have to send an emissary of your own disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Christ, or should we look for another? And Jesus' only response, without a visitation, is this The dead are raised, the blind see, the dumb talk, the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And with that retort, that reply, John the Baptist, even in the physical absence of Jesus, is ready to go home to be with God. Ah, there will be times in which you feel that God has left you. You don't feel his presence, you don't see any sign of his redemptive activity. And even in Psalm 43 and 2, you hear the psalm asking this question or saying this. It's a wonderful proclamation. Oh God, you are my refuge. Question, why have you forsaken me? What? You just got finished saying God's your refuge and now you're saying, why has God left you on the cross of Calvary? We see this come full circle. Jesus, who is the human face of God, the parable of God. God with skin on him. For God as father is God without skin. He is spirit. God as son is Jesus with skin. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And God as spirit gets inside of our skin for he makes his abode and sets up residence in us. But here is God the Son, asking God the Father, God asking God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, God did forsake God. The Father did forsake the Son. And he did it because the son was a sin bearer. He had taken on our sin. And God could not have fellowship with him at this time. Because he who knew no sin, said Corinthians 5.21, became sin. That we who were sinners might be made the righteousness of God. Friday evidenced, if you will, the cry of dereliction that God had forsaken God his son. Saturday seemed to be of no redemptive activity. Nothing is recorded explicitly in the Bible what takes place on Saturday. But Saturday evening begins to insinuate that something different is getting ready to take place. So therefore, Early Sunday morning, this Jesus gets up from the tomb and rises and cries, All power on heaven and on earth are in my hand. And Friday to seem to be so inconsequential and Try to seem to be of no real avail. But if you're going through Friday night frights, and if you're going through Friday night difficulties, then Sunday morning is really coming. When you will rise and see him give you strength so you can rise above difficulties, you can rise above tragedy, you can rise above uncertainties and give him some glory. Friday nights he died, Sunday morning he rose from the dead and because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, then life is worth living because he lives. This song begins with a kind of panting. As the deer pants after the water brooks But it ends with praising Psalm 43 and 5 For I shall yet praise him My savior and my God So go on and give him praise Go on and glorify him When conditions don't change Glorify him When there are situations That are just launched in Praise him Praise him in the morning Praise him in the evening Praise him at midnight Praise him in tragedy praise him in triumph because he's worthy to be praised he is our oasis and he is the one who is that subterranean stream that enables us as patches of vegetation to remain green lush and plush in desert situations father thank you For being our oasis, for being our tranquility in the midst of our turbulence, for being our peace in the midst of our storms. I pray even for someone who may be here, who's living in the desert of sin, dried up. I pray that they might recognize that you provide an oasis of salvation in the midst of lostness. The fact that your son died on the cross, shed his blood that's able to wash away all of our sins and rose that we might be redeemed and justified. May they hear the gospel today. Respond in belief, repentance, and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.